morning, everybody. How are you guys today? Good. It's good to see you all. Um, Ten years ago, uh, this coming December, I was getting ready to preach my first ever sermon at Vancouver Vineyard Church. I'd been here for a few years, and I was really excited that I was invited to be able to come and share a little bit of what God had put on my heart. And... um, and I was working in Corvallis, Oregon. I was working for uh, uh, Oregon State University, just doing a job for my dad, doing some floors. And while we were working on the floors and I was trying to you know, pray through the, the sermon topic that I was preparing and I was getting really nervous, then um, during the lunch break, I checked the news on my phone and saw that uh, something horrific and unspeakable had happened in our nation. Um, it was the, the events at Sandy Hook Elementary And it was something that, like, my body started reacting before my mind could catch up. I was so just dumbstruck and afraid at such a horror. And knowing that I had to preach, I had to get up in front of the whole church and share something of God's word in sort of this moment of national crisis. Um, So I called Steve Fish, who was the pastor of the church, and I said, Steve, I'm out and he was like, whoa, 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 you got to preach. I don't have anything prepared. So, um, so I made a deal with him that he would get up and he would sh- you know, speak to the events and that he would offer a prayer and some comfort. Well, once again this week, we uh, found out about another horrific, unspeakable tragedy. And, and sadly, uh, we can't say it's unimaginable. Um, it was imaginable. And so, is there like an emergency happening? Okay, gosh, this is like terrible timing, jeez. I was going to say, we can't say that what happened this week was unimaginable. It's something that we have horror, like uh, just, we've imagined it. We've lived through it. We've seen this before. The events that happened in Uvalde, Texas, where a gunman entered a classroom and um, uh, killed 19 children and two staff, and... um, we're in a moment now, again, of national grief, of feeling dumbfounded. I don't know if you've experienced what I've experienced this week, basically cycling through grief, followed by anger, followed by numbness, followed by grief, followed by anger, followed by numbness, squeezing my kids extra tight every night before they go to bed. Um, and so we just want to take a minute to acknowledge what has happened and to make some space for grief. And I've invited my friend Joel, who's one of the elders here in our church, to, uh, to offer us some words and a prayer. So Steve's out of town, so Marshall called me this time. <laughs> um, good morning, family. It's Family Sunday, and it's been a tragic week, close on the heels of a similar tragedy a couple of weeks back, following fill in all the blanks from the past years. It's okay if you're not okay. And it's a time to mourn with those who mourn. We've built a culture where our impulse is to fix things and to help. And so often that just yanks people out of the opportunity that their body is trying to go through. Um, and to be honest, I'm, I'm not very good at entering into those spaces myself. Um, 
and there's no adequate language. Um, so I just want to read uh, some reflections on lament, what it's for, how we enter into it, and then just ask God to teach us how to be, how to be still, how to be near him, and how to be near each other. Um, so these are excerpts from a book called This Here Flesh by Cole Arthur Riley. You can't tell me that it doesn't change everything that the one who created all things and holds together all things cried. If Christ wept for Lazarus, he must have done so not out of an absence of hope or faith, but out of love. It was an honoring. When we weep for the conditions of this world, we become truth-tellers in its defense. People who can say, this is not good. It is not well. People who have seen the face of goodness and refuse to call good and curse by the same name. I think when God bears witness to our lament, we discover that we are not calling out to a teacher, but inviting God as a nurturer, a mother who, keep, who hears her child crying in the night. She wakes, rises, and comes to the place where we lie, and she rushes her holy warmth against our flesh and says, I'm here. Lament is not anti-hope. It's not even a stepping stone to hope. Lament itself is a form of hope. It's an innate awareness that what is should not be, as if something is written in our hearts that tells us exactly what we are meant for. And whenever confronted with something contrary to this, we experience a crumbling. And in the rubble, we say, God, you promised. We ask, why? We're born knowing how to cry, but it takes another to teach us how to cry well and with purpose. And as we watch our elders cry, we are learning. And I don't know that we have been great as churches in this country of being elders that show others how to enter into these spaces and how to cry. Um, so I'm gonna give some space and just ask God to come. God, there aren't words. But I ask that you would um, return us to the parts of ourselves that you made that feel things and that reach out for you. ask that you would knit us together as families within a larger family that is capable of sitting in pain and discomfort and stillness and not knowing what to do. And you'd help us to lean into that, to be with those who mourn, and to take on their mourning and to mourn with them. ask that you would help us to practice following Jesus into being with those who mourn 
and taking on their mourning as our own. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Sorry, there you go. Ooh, thank you, Joel. Thank you for leading us. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we are going to continue in a series that we have been in where we are walking through Jesus' most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And uh, today we are going to look at Jesus' words about generosity and approval. Before we dive into the text, um, uh, you, just, you may notice that we skipped a section, uh, that last week we talked about divorce and oath-keeping. And that the next thing that should be on the docket is Jesus' commands to love our enemy and to practice uh, nonviolence in our, in our world. Um, but we are going to actually put that on pause. We're going to preach that a couple weeks from now. There's a couple of reasons for that. One of them being, I, I, after, after what happened this week, I wasn't feeling prepared to be able to preach the sermon. I think that it would get a little too spicy. still going to be spicy, so brace yourself for that. But we're going to talk about that on Father's Day, so bring Dad. Um, let's, let's dive into Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I'm a proud millennial. How many millennials do we have in the house today? Yes, we rule the world. Um, now, each generation contributes something really special and meaningful to our world, and millennials will leave, I think, a very important mark on history. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, I recently read about how the four living generations that are uh, in our nation today have each left a, a mark and have been sort of driven by a different question, a different core question that all humans uh, seek to answer. For baby boomers... Uh, your primary question was, what is true? Is the gospel verifiable? How can we know what is absolutely, indisputably, completely true? But then you move on to Gen X, and, the, and for them, the, the truth, that's fine, that's great, but the bigger question is, what is real? Because you can have truth, but it's pointless if it doesn't co correspond with our real life experience. Then you move all the way to the, the youngest generation that we have sort of growing up, Gen Z, um, and their question is, what is beautiful? How do I live a life that is not only true or real, but is also compelling and meaningful? Hashtag van life, you know what I mean? But for millennials, my people, 
the question that drives our generation is, what is good? What is goodness? And how do we fight for it? Millennials tend to have sort of this activist bent and are obsessed with being on the right side of history. However, while that may be true for millennials, what we are most known for is our constant need to document and publish every aspect of our lives for everyone to see. Like, I have this strange need to tell the world what I ordered at a restaurant or what I cooked for dinner. I have, like, this unstifable, like, requirement of taking a picture at every sporting event I go to or every concert that I go to or every movie that I see just to make sure that everyone knows what I'm doing. I need to be seen. Older generations would go and do, you know, good civic things like voting, and they would be given a sticker that they could wear that says, I voted. And they could announce to all 20 people that they saw that day that they, in fact, did the right thing. But me, no. I have to take a picture of my ballot. I have to take a picture at the Dropbox, and then I have to browbeat the Internet for not doing their part in voting as well. Older generations would have conversations in diners and cafes with other people in their community whenever there was big news in the world. We, on the other hand, we publish our feelings for the whole world to see, signaling what side of every issue we land on and then getting into internet fights. Uh, historically, Christians would withdraw to the secret place, to the wilderness, to a prayer closet, to be alone with God. We take a picture of our Bible next to our Chemex coffee and put it on the internet. And so Jesus' words to us found in Matthew chapter 6, I believe, are especially prescient for our generation. My generation has a strong value for virtue and for goodness but we have an equally strong value for showing our goodness and signaling our virtue. And Jesus teaches us that it's not enough to simply do the right things, that actually our motivations matter too. We can easily do the right thing for the wrong reason, and Jesus teaches us it actually ends up ruining everything. So let's go through this text verse by verse, and we'll land in a few minutes. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. Jesus gives us a warning about how it is that we, quote, practice our righteousness. And the word that's used here for righteousness is the Greek word diakasine. Uh, <laughs> Can you say it? Because I apparently can't. Um, and this is a bit of a debated word and sort of how best to translate it. Uh, you know, here it's, it's, it's translated as practicing your righteousness in, um, in the NIV. In other translations, it might be practicing good works or doing good deeds. Most scholars agree that this word righteousness is really at its core about relationship. And obviously, this has to do with having right relationship with God, you know, being in right standing with him. But it's also about having right relationship with other people around us in the rest of our world and our close relationships, like our family and our friendships and our work relationships. But beyond that, and more importantly, according to this text in the context here, is how we relate to people who are the poor, those who live on the margins and edges of our society. Other translations, I said, translate this not as practicing righteousness, but as doing good deeds or doing good works. 
Now, depending on your history of being in the church, if you've been a part of certain more reformed traditions, you may end up having a bit of a strange relationship with this idea of doing good works. Sometimes we get really hung up on this phrase, practicing righteousness, because we've been taught from a very early age that all of our righteousness comes only from Christ alone. The first point in the five points of Calvinism is... Thank you, Dennis. Total depravity. He said with deep resignation, by the way, too. Total depravity. That no one is righteous, not even one. That all of our righteous deeds are merely but filthy rags. But Jesus is clear here in this text. He is not saying to not practice righteousness or to not do good works. He is warning us to not practice our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Makes sense, right? Got to be humble. Got to do it for the right reason. Don't let anybody see you. But if you've been reading the Sermon on the Mount, this should cause a little bit of pause. Like, wait a minute. Didn't he just command the opposite one page before this? Like, didn't he just talk about how we're supposed to be salt and light? He said something like, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see all of your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, so sometimes... I'm supposed to do good deeds and make sure everybody sees it. And then other times, I'm supposed to do good deeds and make sure that nobody sees it. How do I know when to do what? And the key to unlocking this idea is found right here in verse 16 of chapter 5. So that they, meaning the world, will see your good deeds and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. The question is really about who gets the glory are you getting the glory when other people see the cool Jesus-y stuff that you're doing? Or is it pointing people beyond you to the Father? And I believe that in the world that we live in today, we need to see the beauty of lives that are submitted to God. We need examples of faithfulness and generosity and righteousness. We need in a world that is so corrupted and where the rest of the world mostly just sees the corruption and problems with the church, we need lives that are reflecting the beauty of the way of Jesus. Amen? But when you do these things, don't show off. Don't do it as a performance to others. The question that we all have to ask ourselves all of the time, and the question that I have to ask myself as a professional Christian who stands on stage every single week, is why am I doing this? What is my motivation? What am I trying to get out of this experience? And so from here, in this sort of thesis statement Jesus makes in verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus goes on to list three core spiritual disciplines or practices that were central to the life of, ev of, of every, uh, you know, God-fearer or Jew or, or even follower of Jesus in Jesus' day. He says that these are sort of the three basics that every follower of Jesus is supposed to do. They're supposed to give money to the needy, which is what we're talking about today, they're supposed to pray, and they're supposed to fast. And prayer and fasting is something that's going to be a couple weeks from now. Pastor Jace is going to lead us in it. It's going to be great. Come back for that. 
And so, so we're going to just look together for a few minutes at Jesus' words about giving to the needy. In verse 2, he says, So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Real quick, notice, notice this word, when, that is right there. It's the second word in, in verse 2. Now, funny thing about this word when, in the Greek, in the Hebrew, in the Aramaic, and every other language, it's translated as when, not if. Meaning that the expectation for every follower of Jesus is that we live a life of generosity that overflows to caring for other people in need. Jesus assumes that this will be a regular practice in every believer. When you give to the needy, And so the idea here of giving to the needy is that above your taxes, your regular contribution, you know, in in Jesus' day, it would be the the temple contribution, people would also give faithfully and generously to make sure that the needs of the poor and the destitute were cared for. That throughout history, this was known as uh, almsgiving, you know, like Friar Tuck in uh, whatever, Robin Hood. (laughs) Jeez. Robin Hood, alms for the poor. And um, <clears throat> that's what this idea is. It's about, it's almsgiving. And that's a really helpful way of thinking about it because with almsgiving, it was actually more than just giving money, though it was not less than that. It also involved being proximate to the poor, serving and using your talents and your time. It's things like caring for foster kids in your home, driving a refugee family to the appointments that they have, taking food to a shut-in who needs help, helping your houseless friend get housing. This phrase is meant to be way, way, is like a much more sort of all-encompassing way of, of speaking to what we would call social justice today. In first century Israel, there was no state-sponsored welfare system. Care for the needy flowed directly through the temple system and through relationships with religious people. So giving to the poor was a core way of life for all Jewish people. And so then eventually, after Jesus' time, AD 70 comes along. And at AD 70, the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is in ruins and the entire temple system for the Jewish people completely collapses all at once. And so following AD 70, throughout the rest of history, Jewish people would actually use almsgiving, caring for the needy and the poor, as a substitute for for the sacrificial system to make atonement. Instead of depending on the blood of bulls and goats to, to sort of absolve them of their sin, they would give generously to care for the needs of the poor. And so throughout, and then throughout history, we see that the church, the Jesus people, they've been on the front lines of taking care of the vulnerable, feeding people, building hospitals, caring for the mentally ill and physically disabled, adopting orphans, and a hundred other acts of justice. The church has always been on the leading edge of social justice, and Jesus calls us to continue leading the way. This is a high value for the Father. This is crucial for us as the church. We are people committed to caring for the vulnerable in our community. But Jesus gives a warning in the way that we do it. He says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. 
Now, this here is a, is a funny word picture that Jesus is giving. Most scholars believe that Jesus is not imagining some Pharisee or some religious leader walking into the synagogue, pulling out, you know, his, his uh, shofar, like it's a bow staff, and then doing a little jazz riff on his way in, blasting his trumpet to let everybody know that he's come in. Or he's, he, you know, like, here I am, everybody, I'm about to give, listen up, watch this. Like, it's not really that that Jesus is talking about. Instead, in the synagogue in Jesus' day, there was a special giving box that was, that was designated for caring for the poor. And it was a giving box that was called the shofar box. And it was an enclosed box, and at the top of it, there was a ram's horn that would stick up out of it, and it would basically be like a funnel. And so people who were giving to the, the poor would come, and they would drop their contribution into these giving boxes. And Jesus makes a warning about how you do it. So imagine that you are waiting in line, and that there's this shofar box that's up you know, at the front of the synagogue. You had just finished reading the Torah portion, and some little old lady walks up. It's always a... They always do it the best, the little old ladies. And she just takes her little offering and she just kind of lightly puts it in. And that's really nice. And the next person's like, hey, that was good. Sounded like only one coin, though. I need to make sure that people know that I've got a little bit more. So let's add a little bit of flair to it. <laughs> and the next person's like, all right, that was, that was like a few, but I need everybody to know that I came to play. <laughs> and the noise is coming and it's clanging everyone. People are like, whoa. And the person walks away like, yeah. Yeah, I did. Oh, <laughs> silly me. I, I have more. I, I forgot. Well, uh, oh yeah, Kobe. Catch you on the flippity flip. <laughs> like one for nine. Um, that's all right. This is what Jesus is speaking to here. He's talking about the guy who is coming, like wanting to show off just how generous he is. And oh yeah, that was me, guys. That's how I care for the poor. Those are all nickels, by the way. It's like two bucks. Um, when you give to the needy, don't clang the offering box so everyone can hear how much you gave. That is what the hypocrites do. Now, this word hypocrite, again, more Greek for you. It's the word hypocrites. And, and it didn't have the same stigma that we have today with this word hypocrite. It didn't mean liar, deceiver, you know, somebody who is, who is empty in what they do. It was actually a word that simply meant actor. The hypocrites, they would perform at the theater. Um, at, uh, they would perform all kinds of plays, or they would perform uh, different speeches. It was, it was a performance. And so Jesus here, when he's using the word hypocrites, he's actually confronting our performative religion. He hates when people do the right thing for the wrong reason. He hates our performative religion. He hates when we are putting on a show for other people rather than expressing sincere hearts for God. And this is the heart of God throughout the entire Old Testament. We see it over and over again through the prophets. In Isaiah 29, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Or one of my favorite prophets, the prophet Amos, he says, 
speaking for God. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. He's saying your showy, performative religion is a stench in my nostrils. You want to show me that you have a sincere heart? Care for the poor. Do social justice. And for centuries, the people of God, they would fall into this performative cycle over and over again, doing the right thing externally while having their hearts steeped in sin and self-righteousness. And God would speak through his prophets, and he would say, Enough! I hate your works. It's nothing but noise. You're performing. You're pretending. And I won't listen to it anymore. And this is the heart of Jesus a few chapters later. Later in Matthew, Jesus finally, he fully, he's like, you want to know what I really think, what I was talking about in Matthew chapter 6? I'm going to tell you what I really think. In Matthew 23, he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you performers. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead bodies or sorry, full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of pretending and wickedness. These religious leaders, they look so impressive. They dress right. They clang the offering boxes. They come in. They have verses memorized, and everyone admires them for their piety. And Jesus says it's all empty. It's all for show. It's nothing more than a performance. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. They love to be seen and honored by others, and this is all the reward that they're going to end up getting. It feels good to be seen and congratulated by people, doesn't it? Like, it feels really good to get an award or some recognition. But that short-lived honor from other people a like on Facebook, a round of applause at church, a retweet. Human recognition will be nothing more than cotton candy in your mouth, sweet for but a moment, and in the end, it leaves you empty with a stomach ache. So what is the solution that Jesus gives so that we don't end up doing this? How do we practice righteousness without ruining it with performance? Verse 3, and when you give to the needy, do not know, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The way that we fight off the pride or the insecurity that comes with chasing the approvals, the approval of others, is to live our lives with a sense of secrecy. The way we cleanse our heart from craving the attention and recognition of other people is to follow Jesus and to feast on the attention of the Father. And when he says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, obviously he's not saying like you need to figure out how to, to you know, close your eyes while you're giving so that you, know, you don't accidentally see how much you gave. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's actually speaking to sort of the long formational process in our lives where righteousness becomes so woven into the fabric of our being that we don't even notice that we're doing it. It just overflows. To quote pastor and philosopher Dallas Willard, 
we must never forget that Jesus points beyond action to the source of action and character. This is a general principle that governs all he says. The kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. As, for example, when driving one's own car, speaking one's native language. What they do, they do naturally, often automatically, simply because of what they are pervasively and internally. These are people who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret, no matter who is watching, for they are absorbed in the love of God and those around them. They hardly notice their own deed and rarely remember it. In the language from last week's sermon, uh, these are people who are immersed in sort of the I and thou from Martin Buber. They live from and to the eternal thou. I know lots of people like this. This is the great thing about being a part of this amazing church, is I know lots of people whose goodness sort of overflows in their lives, and they hardly even seem aware of it. Like, sorry to embarrass you, but Kara Wixel is one of these people in my life. Every day I come to a morning prayer meeting and she's leading the prayer meeting and as we are getting ready to leave the prayer meeting, I ask her, oh, what are you up to for the rest of the day? And then she goes to list three or four people that she's just gonna go serve. And she says it, you know, she doesn't brag, nor is she bashfully hiding it. She's just matter of fact. She wouldn't have mentioned it except that I asked her. The righteousness of God just overflows in her life. She hardly even knows what it is that she is doing, and yet she's overflowing God's goodness. Sorry, Kara, I just took whatever reward you have. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I have good news. God loves to reward his people for the good things that they do. Throughout the Bible, we see this, this theme flowing over and over again. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. Each one will be tested as through fire and rewarded according to their good deeds. And again, this is a theme in the Bible that for many of us, because of our church background, makes us super uncomfortable because we've seen it abused so much. When we read about the rewards of the Father, we may have some slimy preacher in a slick suit you know, in our minds who's preaching a prosperity gospel and for some reason always in a southern accent <laughs> offering to show us how to live our best life now. Whenever I read about God rewarding me, I find myself getting a little bit uncomfortable and maybe even suspicious waiting to see when that offering plate is finally going to arrive. And yet the Bible is clear. God loves to reward us. The key is understanding the nature of his rewards. In this life, God loves to give blessing to his children because he's kind and he's generous. But the rewards that we receive, at least on this side of resurrection, is simply the closeness of relationship with the Father. It's the attention and the gaze of God. It's important that we don't grow accustomed to seeing any benefit or blessing in our lives, a new car, a new a gift, a bonus, or whatever, as the specifically the reward of God for you doing righteousness. That's transactional. No, God wants to give us rewards, but those rewards are coming on the other side of resurrection. In the meantime, we can just celebrate his blessings. And the rewards that we receive today are a close and intimate relationship with him. 
A life of overflowing righteousness is a life that is empowered by the hand of God because you can only do this with humility as you walk closely with him. And it becomes a uh, self-reinforcing cycle. You walk closely with God, you read his word, and slowly you're transformed more into his image. You become more like God. And as you become more like God, you end up just sort of unconsciously uh, or self-forgetfully just practicing righteousness and caring for other people. And as you, as you practice this righteousness as an act of overflow, God sees it, and then he rewards you with more of himself. And then you become more like him. And then you go and you do more good righteous things. And then he gives you more reward. And then it just becomes this amazing and beautiful cycle of being blessed with an intimate, close relationship with God as we become like him and walk closely with him. We crave attention, And I think that that's a good thing. I think that it's something that was created in us. My kids crave attention from me and Carly, like, all the time. This is why, over the last couple of years, working from home is a nightmare. And a blessing. It's a nightmare. Watch me, Dad. No, serious, Dad, look at me. Dad, you're not watching. Dad, I have to show you. Dad, Dad, Dad. To quote my three-year-old, get off your stupid phone. (laughs) Uh, That was at 9 a.m. this morning, (laughs) by the way. This desire to be seen is woven into our DNA by God because we were made and we want to be seen by him. We have an even better father than anyone in this room whose eyes, we are told in Scripture, roam the earth seeking hearts that are fully given to him so that he can give them strong support, so that he can draw near to them. When we turn to other people to fill that craving for attention, it feels good, but it ends up being all the reward we end up getting. It's a cheap substitute. When we do the right things, humbly, secretly, and self-forgetfully, we receive the reward of a close relationship with God, walking with him in intimate friendship. Now, I think that the reality is that many people today who live their lives for the applause of other people do so out of a deep insecurity and often a father wound. They didn't get this kind of attention from their parents when they really needed it, and it affects them the rest of their life. I'm sure many can relate to that. You have a father who sees you. He loves you. He's the dad who's watching from the sidelines, cheering you on. And the way that we become these kind of people, people who overflow righteousness, who overflow generosity and care for others, is not through hiding so that no one can see anything good we do, even shielding our own eyes from it and not wanting to acknowledge we've done something good. We become these kind of people by seeing the loving attention of our Father on us and performing them boldly and passionately and excitedly, but only for his attention. Watch this, Dad. I can be just like you, Dad. I want to do this with you, Dad. That is the the posture of a disciple. Amen? Amen?